and to call to order the Health Service Board meeting of Thursday, November 9th. Would you all please stand with me and say the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Um, item number two, please. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Agenda item number two is roll call, starting with President Scott, who is excused. Vice President Howe. Present. Commissioner Breslin. Here. Commissioner Canning. Present. Supervisor Dorsey will arrive shortly. Commissioner Falsby. Present. And Commissioner Zavansky. Present. With that, we have quorum. Thank you, and thanks everyone for coming today. All right, um, agenda item number three, please. Agenda item number three is general public comment, an opportunity for members of the public to comment on any matter within the board's jurisdiction that is not on the agenda, including requesting that the board place a matter on a future agenda item. And before we begin, I'll be reading our public comment instructions aloud. For anyone who's waiting, you can approach the podium. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. The Health Service Board welcomes public participation during public comment periods. There's an opportunity for the general public to comment at the beginning of the meeting and an opportunity to comment on each agenda item. In-person public comment will be first, then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. The Health Service Board will hear up to 30 minutes of remote public comment total for each agenda item. Remote public comment from people who have, who have received an accommodation due to a disability will count, not count toward that 30 minute limit. Members of the public attending via phone can dial in by calling 415-655-0001. When prompted, enter access code 2660-317-0055, then press pound. You'll be prompted to enter the webinar password 1145, then press pound again. Press star three to be added to the public comment queue and you'll hear the prompt, you have raised your hand to answer a question. Please wait until the host calls on you. When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. You'll be muted when your time has expired. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the queue to speak. A raised hand will appear next to your name. When you're unmuted in the system, a request to unmute will appear on your screen. Please select unmute to speak. Once you hear me say welcome caller, you can begin speaking. When your time has expired, you'll be muted. Please click on the raise hand icon to lower your hand after speaking. Members of the public are encouraged to state their name clearly, although they may remain anonymous. I'll give an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining. When your three minutes have ended, I'll say thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and I'll unmute the next caller. We want to thank SFGov TV and Media Services for sharing this meeting with the public. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote. Oh, here we go. Oh, excuse me. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Richard Rothman, retired 
city worker, and I want to talk about two items, Delta Dental and VSP. First, Delta Dental. Uh, you know, I had trouble with them a couple of years ago, and this is really outrageous. I had to have a, a tooth extracted, and they paid for that, but they won't pay, or they say our plan doesn't cover, uh, you know, the gum or, or protecting the gum because it was an emergency. But if it was an emergency, uh, uh, a non-emergency, the plan would cover. So I don't understand. I've g given the staff the codes, and uh, maybe um, next year this can be included, uh, or how much would it cost to add this to our plan, these three codes, or at least two of the codes. And um, it, it, you know, this, the staff needs to look into this and provide the board in the in our members of why this uh, emergency, uh, uh, you know, to protect my gum was not included in our in our plan. And uh, you know, my dentist says that uh, Delta Dental has been in a, been sued a couple of times. Maybe she we should look for another um, a vendor. And the other item I want to talk about is uh, VSP. Um, I had to see a, uh, my ophthalmologist at Kaiser, and she wanted to know my prescription. But since I'm not in Kaiser uh, glasses, and, uh, you know, VSP, I think we should make uh, VSP have its providers put our uh, our eyeglasses uh, prescriptions in a database so I can easily, we can easily access them. So when my doctor at Kaiser asked for the prescription, I could just download it and email it to her. And this way, I had to go to my dentist or have my dentist um, email me or fax me my prescription, and then I had to send it to Kaiser. You know, we live in an electronic age, and we're a big... Uh, uh, user VSP, so I don't see why we can't ask uh, VSP to ask its providers to put our uh, our medical our eyeglass records in a computer system, so I can access them, or I can have uh, my doctors ask, access my uh, my medical records. My Kaiser records are all on online even ones I don't even know about. But so maybe next year we can ask VSP to put their, their, uh, their records in a database. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else can approach the podium at this time? Afternoon. My name is uh, Jeremiah Cadigan. I'm a director with the Firefighters Union Local 798. Sir, can you speak into the mic? Thank a lot of. Uh, my name is Jeremiah Cadigan. I'm a director with the Firefighters Union Local 798. Uh, there's been a lot of concern from my members uh, about Delta as well. Uh, a lot of the local dentists are no longer accepting it. People are being told that that they're just their dentist does not take Delta anymore. So, just. Uh, put it on your uh, radar. Uh, I'm here. It got brought up again today at uh, today's general membership meeting. And uh, I've heard it anecdotally through the firehouse several times, you know, guys saying, hey, but my dentist doesn't accept our plan anymore. So, uh, and lacks of an alternative. So, 
just make sure you guys are aware that's been in the in the uh, happening. I've been here for about six months now. Thank you. Is Thank it you very just much. actives or is it retirees as well? This here? is uh, I've been hearing it mostly from active members, active members in the firehouses while at work, you know, around the table. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Fred Sanchez would protect our benefits. Speaking about Delta Dental, I get it from the retirees' perspective. And they talk about in the handbook under Delta Dental, it says you get two free uh, uh, cleanings a year. But what the complaint is, is it has a rate in there, something like, like $175. And the Delta Dental dentist that you go to, he might be charging you $325 a cleaning. So you get this thing where they'll give you, you know, the $175 and they go, well, the literature says it's free. And I said, okay, I can bring this before the Health Service Commission. And uh, how is that rate set you know is that by charter that 175 for a cleaning i'm just kind of if you could address that difference in how do we close that gap i mean uh, i don't know how you do that but that's the question we get all the time it says it's free but it turns out it's not really free thank you and with that anyone else can approach the podium now or we'll move to our remote public comment no one else has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have two callers on the phone line. One caller has specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. I will indicate when there are no more callers in the queue, and you will hear a brief silence as we transition between callers. Welcome, caller. Moderator will want to make sure that that person is unmuted. And is that is that a, uh, something you're able to do, moderator? I can check in if not. Yes, please check in, Board Secretary, on privileges to unmute caller identified user three. Thank you. Just one moment, thank you. Thank you everyone for your patience. We're wanting to make sure that our remote public comment is working. Board Secretary. Uh, yeah. Welcome caller, if you can hear us. Yeah, can you hear me? I'm sorry. If you could speak a little louder. Hey, this is Weiner. I came in a little late to the meeting and I'm wondering if my comment is appropriate or not. If it is not, please excuse me. I'm concerned about 
remote calls, public comments, uh, continuing before this body, because uh, I'm, I'm presently in assisted living. I can't make it to the meetings as I normally would. And also there are people out of town and they could be at some distance and they have concerns about their benefits. So I would like to see this, uh, this right continued. I think it's very important that the commission hear all points of view about all matters concerning them and this body. And I would like to see it continued. If any inappropriate language of sentiments are concerned, they can be shut off. And those are my concerns, and I thank you for your audience. Thank you, caller. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue. Thank you, Board Secretary. There are no additional callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you, Holly. Um, next agenda item, please. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Agenda item number four is approval with possible modifications of the minutes of the meeting set forth below. This is an action item, and the minutes are from the September 14th, 2023 Health Service Board regular meeting minutes. Co colleagues, do you have any questions or concerns about the minutes? Otherwise, um, I'll entertain a motion. Yes, Supervisor. Um, I actually have four pages of um, little notes. Um, page five. Commissioner Zvansky, um, if you have those notes, I'm happy to take them. If, if Vice President Howe, that's fine. That's fine with me. Okay, I'll will send them to you because they're they're mostly grammatical, okay. little you know um, things that aren't that significant. Sure, that's fine. Okay. Uh huh. Thank you, Commissioner Zvansky. Thank you. I move approval of the um, um, meetings of the Health Service Board from um, September 2023. I'm not sure what date it was. Second. It's been properly moved and seconded. Uh, so we'll open it up for public comment. Thank you, President, Thank uh, you. Vice President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll move to our in-person public comment and no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have three callers on the phone line. Zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Great, thank you. Next item, please. Agenda item number five. Oh, I'm so sorry. I always do this. I never <laughs> want to vote on action items. Oh. Okay, we'll take a roll call vote, please. Thank you. Um, Vice President Howe, roll call vote starting with Vice President Howe. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Commissioner Follinsby. Aye, and for the record, it's December, September 14, 2023 minutes. I didn't have the date, but it's September 14. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Zvansky. Aye. With. Thank you. It's passed unanimously. My apologies. I even circled action item on my agenda. 
so that I didn't bypass it again. So, all right, now, next agenda item, please. Thank you, Vice President Howe. And next agenda item, number five, is President's Report, and this is a discussion item. It will be presented by Vice President Howe. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining us. September seems like so long ago, but in between, we had open enrollment, and so I do want to congratulate the team on another successful open enrollment. I know that um, Abby will have more in her report. Um, and then I do want to uh, just say that we have a full agenda today, including a closed session item on an appeal. So uh, we, we do want to give um, due time to each item, but I also wanted us to be cognizant of the fact that there's a commission that comes in after us and needs this room. So sorry, my watch just talked. And a talking watch. And a talking watch. <laughs> and um, I also wanted to uh, let everybody know, if you don't know already, that uh, Abby, Iftikhar, and Michael will be at the CalPelra conference next week. CalPelra is the California Public Employers Labor Relations Association, and they will be presenting a session on Friday morning. So I will be attending. I know that some of you um, out there from our carriers will also be attending, so we're looking forward to hearing from them. And that's all from my report. Excuse me, did we approve the August minutes as well as the September? No. The August minutes are here too. The August um, meeting minutes would have been approved at the September meeting. Are they were? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Because I see them on here too. It's just a pop up. Even if, longer ago. So. <laughs> right, if we approve this, no, fine. Well, agenda item number six yes, please. is the director's report. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Abby Yant, SFHSS Executive Director. Yes. Okay. Good afternoon, commissioners. Um, Abby Yant, Executive Director, San Francisco Health Service System. Uh, and I just want to uh, reemphasize the, and congratulate the entire HSS team. Um, and with a, um, a, a lot of work uh, by many, by everybody, on the open enrollment that was very successful this year. Um, we were able to open our doors and actually help real people. Um, we uh, have a, 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 a lot of retirees who were able to make appointments with us, um, not always in the uh, tomorrow, because uh, we're pretty booked, but it's working out very well. And I'm going to defer any detailed report on this until next month when uh, Ray and team will be giving all the highlights of how things went. But it was a very successful, um, and we had our bumps in the early, early weeks, but we were smooth sailing uh, in the last week, which is always the biggest challenge. So congratulations to the entire team. Um, I also just sadly want to note uh, the passing of a former uh, health service system staff member, uh, Vince McInerney. Um, he, he was working there when I first started and just was um, a very pleasant uh, person and really worked. It was a critical part of the um, IT team and uh, was a joy to work with and retired, uh, I think, in 2018. Yes, that's what I said. And um, so it, it just... Uh, the staff that had the opportunity to work with him uh, can't say enough about him, so it's really nice. Also, on the good news, because you all know how we've had many, many openings at uh, the um, in our department, and our uh, Department of Human Resources has been um, terrific in supporting us and bringing in new people, and many of them are here. Some of them are here today, so I want to uh, welcome, and if you wouldn't mind standing. Um, Kimberly Yu, 
Kimberly Yadama, Gary Wong, and Jay de Guzman. Thank you and welcome. 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 Um, on the announcements, uh, not only do we get to talk at Cal Perla uh, next week, uh, we are also talking to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors Budget and Finance Committee. Um, Supervisor Chan, who used to have a seat on the Health Service Board, um, is very interested in having a deep understanding of the trends in the health cost of health care. And so our team has put together a pretty robust um, presentation. She, as the chair of the Budget Committee, uh, wants to be certain that her colleagues um, appreciate the environment that we're currently working in. Um, so that when the rates come before them in July, they'll have that uh, context uh, within which to uh, review those, um, those rates uh, next year. We're certainly uh, looking forward to um, a different year than we had this past. Um, and uh, so the next item on the agenda is, uh, as you know, there uh, had been um, um, a problem with um, some of our members being turned away for care or having complex uh, discussions about billing with the UCSF um, uh, medical group, uh, not the medical center, but the medical group. Uh, and uh, it, it, they had been uh, what's called a willing provider that didn't require a contract with uh, the United Healthcare, uh, but they have determined uh, that they wish to engage in a contract with United Healthcare. So the two parties have been negotiating. As far as I know, they have not resolved uh, that yet. Uh, we're hopeful. Um, and uh, so some of our members that got some messages from the uh, UCSF medical group, um, I think have, for the most part, have been able to work things out. And uh, we haven't heard of any problems recently. So um, it's... Um, it was our expectation that the medical group would not change their practice without affording us some heads-up opportunity to determine if there was anything we could do. So at the moment, it's, it's kind of on the back burner, but we're keeping a cl close eye on it. The, um, also, I think I've reported out to you that I sit on the, health, the California State Health Care Affordability Board's Advisory Committee. That's a mouthful. Um, and it's a very um, um, heroic <laughs> effort uh, on the part of uh, the uh, governor and the legislation uh, to it, it puts together a work group, a board, to actually determine how to cap the, total, the increases in total cost of care. And it's a pretty complicated um, uh, situ uh, effort. Uh, and there's a lot of meeting time uh, at the um, board itself and then the advisory committee. I've been participating in the advisory committee. I watch the um, board meeting and it continues to go forward. The way that the regulations are written, um, 2025 will be the base year. Um, and so uh, we'll, s and they will fairly soon determine what their uh, methodology will be and the benchmarks will be for um, determining how they will cap rates going forward. So it's a pretty important um, effort and there's a lot of people involved. Uh, there's 29 of us on the advisory committee uh, and all voices, uh, as you can imagine, around the table. So it's a very rich process. Um, uh, 
um, our CFO, Iftikhar, and working with Ann has uh, done our annual review of what audits uh, we have done or in process or planned and looking forward to next year as well. Uh, and the audits that uh, we're talking about are, are plan audits generally. You will have a report today on the external um, audit. Also in their packet is a blackout notice period. We will speak to this when we talk about the Medicare RFP, but the blackout notice this year comes early because we um, will uh, issue it uh, tomorrow after this board has heard what our plans are for doing the RFP. And that, so that will continue through the entire rates and benefits season through June of 2024. Um, we have some uh, great information in the board packet about our uh, celebrations with different, the Native American populations and others that I encourage you to read. Um, Holly has helped us put together um, a report on the emails that uh, come directly to the board. Um, I will just note that many of them had to do with the UHC UCSF medical group. Um, and I appreciate our members who took the time to uh, write to the board and, and we are tracking that as I said, but they have kind of settled down. Um, the last thing I just want to highlight, uh, I was telling Captain Canning on the way in, uh, I don't know if you guys seen the news, but there's a skate park across the street from us now, UN Plaza. Um, yeah. And it is so refreshing uh, to hear the sound of skateboards. <laughs> I never thought I'd say that. Uh, but the, uh, the whole atmosphere and the energy is so beautiful. Uh, I'd encourage you, which I probably wouldn't have done until yesterday, to walk through United Nations Plaza and really enjoy it. There's a really nice fitness center. Uh, if any of you have seen the one around Mar on Marina Boulevard, uh, it looks very much like that. Um, so the, there's these efforts to enhance the, uh, the UN Plaza Civic Center area are well underway, and I encourage you to check it out. Okay, any questions? Can I just ask one question? Um, there was an article in the Chronicle recently that one of the supervisors is, is, I guess, contemplating a proposal in 2024 for the election cycle to sort of streamline city government. Uh, and the article mentioned there were over 300 commissions and, and committees, et cetera, et cetera. And I was just curious to know if you've heard anything about that um, and what it would take to actually accomplish that. And, um, you know, in terms of this own uh, board, but also just the intent, I understand the intent. Um, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of commissioners and appointees, et cetera. So do you, have you heard anything about that? We have not been approached about that. And um, at least I can only speak for this commission and that would take a charter amendment to yeah. change that. Any other questions or comments? If not, we'll open it up for public comment. Thank you, Vice President Scott. Public, <clears throat> public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. Oh, good afternoon again, Richard Rothman. As somebody who also follows a school district at a 
previous uh, meeting, the director uh, mentioned that uh, our, the health system was having problems integrating new members from the school district, and I was just wondering if that problem's been resolved or if that still is a problem, and there's other problems with the school district, because I know they've had a really bad problem with their HR, uh, with their human resources system, so I was just wondering if it, it's still affecting uh, our members in the health service system. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Fred Sanchez again from Protect Our Benefits. On that, United Healthcare UCSF Medical Group, the concern with retirees is what they had heard that no new uh, patients would be seen there, that existing patients, they would continue to be able to get their services there. And, you know, you mentioned kind of there's it's kind of on the back burner that it hasn't been resolved. I mean, uh, I'm trying to, because we continue to get the calls, what about, does there have to be, they always kind of honored it, but there's nothing concrete in writing. We're just trying to, you know, do new patients still, will they honor them or, because this is current and we've written them numerous letters, to UNC as well as UCSF Medical Group, and neither of them have ever responded. Thank you. Any other speakers in the audience? Can I, I'd like to maybe make a comment, a response. I was curious about this as well. So in the enrollment packet, I actually went through uh, electronically to see who was listed as providers in the United Healthcare um, plan, and there were no UCSF uh, uh, providers that I could identify with UCSF addresses in the provider list. The medical center was listed, but the providers are not. And so if a member was trying to find a new provider, there would be no uh, access. That list listed two of my former associates who were infectious disease doctors at Sutter's having open panels for primary care. I was a little surprised because that's not what we did 30 years ago, and they still don't. So that list needs to be updated in general, but there were no UCSF providers. With that, we can move to our remote public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have two callers on the phone line. Zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Next agenda item, please. Agenda item number seven is SFHSS financial report as of September 30th, 2023. This will be presented by Iftikhar Hussein, SFHSS chief financial officer. Uh, good afternoon. Um, so I'm here to present results for the first um, three months of uh, fiscal 2024. And uh, for the first three months, we, um, uh, based on the experience of the first three months, we're expecting that by the end of the year, the uh, trust will decrease by about 11 million. We expect uh, we expected that actually built into our rates is, is uh, the use of stabilization and sort of settlement, which have, which would have caused the trust to go down by uh, for 
15 million almost. So this is as expected. We are seeing some high claims uh, in the first uh, three months, but it's actually fairly small. 1.5 million um, is, a, is a pretty small amount. Uh, and it's mostly medical claims. The dental claims are favorable. Uh, for the pharmacy, we are projecting about a $15 million rebate this year. Uh, we have not received any for the first three months, but that's not really a cause for alarm. These come in uh, throughout the year. Uh, the, um, uh, because of the high interest rates, we are expecting about $3 million in, in interest income uh, this year, built into our forecast. Um, the Healthcare Sustainability Fund, uh, we're expecting a net decrease or net use of $1.2 million uh, based on budget activities. Uh, the general fund is favorable, mainly due to vacancies. Um, there's a presentation today on the audit right after this. So you look at the uh, audit results of uh, the, um, the Medical Trust Fund for the fiscal year end 2023. I'm happy to answer any questions on the financials. Well, thank you so much, and I thank you for your diligence in managing these funds, too. I think the, um, the fact that we are ahead in the budget for the general fund is not necessarily good news because of the reason, but um, for the vacancy. So we hope to see that, that shift. <laughs> so, Great. Not under your control, but just a comment. So any other comments or questions? Nope. If not, we'll open it up for public comment. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person co public comment will be first, and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have two callers on the phone line. One caller has entered the public comment queue at this time. I will announce if more callers queue enter the queue. Elevating the first caller now. Welcome, caller. I'm sorry, I was commenting on item number six. And for um, Commissioner Pollenberg, from the concern about the streamlining report, it's put together by this group called Together San Francisco, and they're accessible on the internet, and they've had some public meetings about this. So uh, this is for his information, and I believe one of the proponents of uh, this proposal is Supervisor Angardo of District 6. So I apologize for being one in my commentary. Thank you, caller. Moder our moderator will notify us of any, any other callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, there are no additional callers in the queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Next agenda item, please. Agenda item number eight, annual audit report. This is an action item and will be introduced by Iftikhar Hussein, our SFHSS fin Chief Financial Officer, and will be presented by Craig Harner and Yia Yang from MGO. So good afternoon. I want to introduce Craig Harner 
and Ye Yang. So MGO is a firm that audits, uh, has been doing our audits for the Medical Trust Fund. They also are the auditors uh, for the city and county of San Francisco. Um, and um, Craig Harner is the uh, partner on the job, and Ye Yang is the manager. Welcome. Thank you. And we'll just want to make sure this slide is correct. If Descartes might be um, of assistance to find the slide. Thank you. All right, thank you, uh, Iftikhar, for the introduction. Again, I'm Craig Harner. I'm a partner with MGO, so I'm responsible for the, um, the overall audit of the financial statements. And again, with me is Ye Yang, my um, audit supervisor. And today we're going to present the results of our audit of the financial statements of the, um, the Benefit Trust Fund for the year ended June 30, 2023. Um, so Ye, if you want to click ahead. <laughs> All right. Um, so, as part of our uh, audit, we issue three reports. Um, they're in two. There are two uh, attachments today to the agenda item. The first two reports are independent auditors' report that covers the financial statements, which is at the front of the financial statement um, uh, packet. And then the, la the second report is our report on internal controls and compliance, which is the last report, the last couple pages of that packet. And then the our last report is our report to the uh, Health Services Board, otherwise known as the uh, communications to those charged with governance, which is required by our audit standards to kind of give the the, uh, the board a summary of the of the audit and any significant findings that we had. And that's the that's the second report that we're presenting today. All right, so we'll go ahead and we'll go into the audit results because that's the you know the, the very important thing and the key thing that we're contracted to do is perform our audit. We issued our audit report on October 31st, uh, 2023, and we are happy to say we issued an unmodified opinion on those financial statements, which for, um, again, an unmodified opinion is the highest level of assurance that an independent auditor can give an organization uh, regarding the fair presentation of those financial statements. Okay. The second uh, auditor's report that we have in the, in, again, that I mentioned is in the back there is our auditor's report on internal controls and compliance. And this is required when we perform an audit in accordance with government auditing standards. So it adds on an additional uh, focus for us that we report on. Uh, we don't provide any assurance on internal controls or compliance, but if during the course of our audit we come across any um, deficiencies in the internal controls in place or any non-compliance that could materially affect the financial statements, we would have to report those to the board here. And we are happy to report that there were no such um, internal control deficiencies that rose to a significant deficiency or material weakness, and there was no non-compliance with laws or regulations that could affect the, um, the determination of the financial statement amounts there. Okay. And then our, our last report we call uh, the required communications. Again, this is what we are required to communicate to the, to the boards at the conclusion of our audit. Um, the first couple items have to do with what are called qualitative aspects of accounting practice. Uh, the first one being significant accounting policies. So these are important because management has discretion in accounting policies and choosing appropriate ones. Um, and then we go and we look at them and make sure that they're appropriate, which we did. All the accounting policies used by the health service system are appropriate. There's no conflicts with, with GAAP. There's no um, policies used that are um, 
uh, how to put it, that are where they, something could become into question as far as a different application of, of, of GAAP or generally accepted accounting principles. So everything was good there. There were no new accounting policies adopted during the year. Um, and then again, there was nothing that lacked authoritative consensus, so nothing that went against uh, current um, AICPA or uh, rules or guidelines. Uh, the second one has to do with accounting estimates. So the financial statements themselves require, there are certain balances in the financial statements where management is required to make an estimate of that balance. And we're required to report on the most sensitive ones, and that being the reserve for claims that's reported as a liability in the financial statements. And this represents the um, incurred but not reported estimate of claims at June 30th, 2023. It's calculated by, by Aon. And so what we do is we actually contract with our own actuarial specialist to review the, um, review the same information that, that Aon got, so the membership data, claims lag, uh, triangles, historical claims experience, to project um, their own calculation of that, what that liability is and to comp compare that to Aon's results. And so we did that and everything we found was reasonable. There were no significant differences and nothing that called us, that would be called into question as far as um, uh, what management and Aon's estimate was. So. That was the most significant estimate there. And then the remaining uh, required communications I have are, are um, any, there were no difficulties uh, during the audit. We had no um, issues dealing with management. Um, they provided us the signed representation letter, which is the last piece of audit evidence that we need in order to issue and release our report. And there weren't any, um, there weren't any corrected uh, audit adjustments or any misstatements and no uncorrected um, misstatements as well. So all in all, for us, it actually was a pretty, I would say, boring year, which we actually like, because then everything, that means everything's good. So with that, I'll, um, I'll take any questions. Thank you. Thank you. So we like boring. <laughs> so um, colleagues, any questions or comments? I just want to thank you both. I mean, this report, you know, I find all the detail is, the, is incredibly fascinating. <laughs> just to remind everyone, it's more than a billion dollars mm -hmm. of contributions and then deductions that go into this, the business of the board and the health service okay. system. And so to, to outline this down to the penny, <laughs> uh, I find you know, monumental, maybe boring, but it's monumental. And it was actually incredibly clear uh, and helped remind me again of the responsibilities that we all have. Um, to our members, to this, to the uh, employers which we represent, um, but particularly to the health of of the of our members and, and the community. So I want to thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you very much. And I'll, I would have to give a lot of that uh, to uh, Iftikhar and his team because most of the content is there is management's report, and ours is really just those three pages. But we do look through all that yeah. stuff. So I will say thanks again to Iftikhar and his team throughout the audit process. It's it's very. If you've never been through one, it's you know, it goes for a few months and we ask a lot of questions. And, uh, and I found no typographical errors, which is <laughs> about, about, the, about the limit of my abilities in this area. But anyway, thank you, Victor, as well. Yeah. So, all right. You know, I second your thing on typos. I'm always looking for them. <laughs> it was a, a very finely detailed report. Okay. Still you. blew my brains out, but yeah, there. <laughs> Madam Vice President, if I, I may have a, a compliment and then a motion, uh, thank you uh, very much for you and your team and uh, CFO Hussein and, and your team. I, I recognize the uh, thorough uh, and, and, and quite daunting task that this is and the way it's synthesized uh, for someone like me to understand uh, and, and the way we can share it with our members is, is very much appreciated because I know a lot of eyes 
beyond uh, the management of, of, uh, of our commission and of the health service system look into this. So thank you, uh, my, my gratitude, our gratitude, and my compliments. Uh, and with that, I'll make a motion that we uh, accept uh, the audit as presented. Second. It's been properly moved and seconded. We'll open it up for public comment. Remarkable Thank you, Thank you gentlemen. Thank you, Vice President Hill. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have two callers on the phone line. Zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. And before we take a roll call vote, I do want to, again, thank our partners from MGO as they escape out the door, and, uh, <laughs> but also for the, uh, the hard work that Iftikhar, you and your team, have um, poured into this to make it boring for them. So thank you. Um, we'll take a roll call vote. Roll call vote starting with Vice President Howe. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Commissioner Follinsby. Aye. And Commissioner Zvansky. Aye. Great, it's unanimous and we will now take the next agenda item. Agenda item number nine, SFHSS Medicare plan request for proposal, an RFP, for the 2025 plan year. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Executive Director Abby Yant and Michael Visconti, SFHSS Contracts Administration Manager. Oh, good to get up and stretch. Hello. <laughs> Abby Yant, Executive Director of Health Service System. Uh, pleasure to be back before you uh, to talk about the Medicare RFP that we're embarking upon. And I just wanted to sort of uh, uh, kick it off by you know just reminding us of, of what the situation is now. We have our current um, our, our um, what we've done in the world of RFPs. We have uh, in 2023 and in August we talked to you about the consideration of competitive bids, and then in September we told you that we were proceeding with the Medicare RFP for the 25 plan year. Um, today, we're here before you to describe the, update you on the process, talk a little bit about the scope of work uh, for the impending Medicare RFP. Um, in past practice, uh, in 2020, we introduced an RFP for the active and early retiree medical plans for the 2020 plan, plan year. In September of 2020, the governance meeting reviewed the rationale and the timeline. And then on September 10th, uh, the Health Service Board discussed the competitive bid process. And then on February 11th, you approved the results of the RFP that was recommended by the staff. So currently, we have the United Healthcare MA uh, PPO available to Medicare eligible members uh, in all geographies. And that's been in place since 2016 with 17,309 covered lives. We also have Kaiser Permanente Senior Advantage HMO available to Medicare eligible members in most California locations since before 1999 and in most uh, Washington, Oregon, and Hawaii locations since 2018, 14,197 covered lives. 
So today we're going to talk to you about the expected outcomes of the uh, RFP process, uh, the, the um, material to the budget, what we would hope to get, the uh, RFP scope, the eligibility and the quali qualifications to bid, in other words, the gate to even get into the bidding process. Uh, we'll lay out the schedule and uh, provide a conclusion remarks and uh, hope to have your input uh, through the discussion. And now I'm going to turn it over to Michael Visconti, who is our contracts manager and has spoken to you um, a number of times on this process already. Michael? Can I, can I just ask one question, Abby? Um, was the addition in 2016 of the United Healthcare, was that as a result of an RFP prior to that? Or, I mean, is this, this, how many times have we done an RFP for this population? I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, it's prior to my time okay. here, and I don't know if any of our team knows. Do you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. That's all I was asking. Okay. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Commissioner Follinsby. I'm Michael Visconti, Contracts Administration Manager for the San Francisco Health Service System. And yes, um, uh, part of this is to make sure that we get this into a much more routine and uh, structured process so that every number of years, usually on average three to five, we address every aspect of our benefits. Um, and again, I know that's a little bit more work for all of us, but we've shown that we may not be exciting, but we do the same process every time. No surprises, highly transparent process. We'll be doing the same thing here on a very similar schedule to what we did in 2020 for the 2022 plan year. So again, we'll start off with these expected outcomes. And again, I've prefaced these in my previous two presentations to this board, but again, to really highlight here, uh, the material impact to the city. As we've discussed, as was presented to the Board of Supervisors and this board, the greatest material impact to our budget as the city when it comes to our benefits here is the fact that 89% of the cost of these benefits to our retirees is borne by the city. We all know that because of the charter. That will be discussed in great detail uh, by our team at a later presentation today. Um, one of the things was brought up here by both the members of the public and our team is the need for the comparable or improved provider network. We've talked about this and it'll be presented later to you by Mike Clark about how that's any willing provider. What we're talking about here is making it greater than what we have currently for our PPO population. We'll go into a little detail about what that means. We use this sort of term of art, passive PPO, but the simplest way to think about that is that you're paying the same as a member in network or out of network, no confusion whatsoever there. But as discussed, we wanna make sure that what is in and out of network is as good or greater than what we have now to give our members the greatest amount of opportunities to receive care from the best providers. Again, we want to make sure we also have the same or better benefit designs than we currently have. We're not just talking about the financial layout. We're talking about things like those CMS innovation programs. We've presented them before, those meal programs, transportation. We know our membership really appreciates those. We know that they are very beneficial to our overall health. We want to make sure that those are a priority for this assessment and for this RFP. And finally, as we all know, we want to align this with our well thought out and presented strategic plan. We want to make this transparent. We want to make sure that this is 
for all of our members, something that they can predict year to year. And we'll get into that a little later in my presentation, but again, that will require some three to five year rate guarantees. So we do not have any surprises year to year, and neither do our members. Hmm. All right, going into the... Go Mm. All right, I'll go into a quick description of, you can go one more down, thank you. Yeah, seem to be a little out of order. These slides got jostled around a little bit, so it's not Michael's fault. No problem, <laughs> forgive me. I'm gonna go a little out of order here in my yeah. presentation, but um, again, one of the things we're talking about here is the material outcome to our members. And when we presented to you back in 2021 with that RFI that we did, uh, the changes that we had had year over year in the prior two years were either minimal increases, about 1.2% for United Healthcare in the year right before the RFI, or significant decreases year over year, upwards of almost 10% for some of our plans. However, we have seen a very different change in recent years. We've seen upwards of about 15% of an increase for our United Healthcare PPO population. We've seen a less, uh, less severe increase for our HMO population through the KIPSA or Kaiser Permanente Senior Advantage plan. Having seen these, it changes one of the underlying uh, observations we had from our RFI and why we chose not to do a Medicare RFP in 2021. So again, as we mentioned, 89% of this cost is borne by the city. So we are addressing with our first RFP here, the PPO population, since that has had the largest increase. And as you can see from the slide in front of you now, you can see that it also has the greatest delta between the, the member share of cost. All right, we're back on schedule. <laughs> so again, this PPO population is about 17,000 covered employees. I'm sorry, covered lives. These are our retirees that are currently enrolled in the United Healthcare Medicare Advantage P prescription drug PPO plan. We will make sure that the respondents to this RFP cover our members who are, for the most part, largely Medicare parts A and B, but we do have a small number who are part B only. As I mentioned earlier, a requirement will be those three to five year rate commitments. We want to ensure that there is no extreme variability year over year in front of this board and for our team when we are negotiating these. We know that we are in a very uh, unique environment right now that, again, we were not seeing in 2021 when we did our RFI. Again, we also want to make sure that we are supporting what we would call our companion plan members. So these are the non-Medicare eligible dependents or the non-Medicare mem members who are retirees with a Medicare eligible dependent. We want to make sure that that is still continued to be administrated by the respondents to this RFP. We don't want to go down again what we have called split families, which is again an, a significant administrative burden and also more complexity for our members than need be. As mentioned earlier, we do want to have a robust and stable network. We've discussed this recently with comments from the public in previous meetings as well. We want to see a selected provider that has robust, stable, long-standing relationships with these providers, with these hospitals. As I mentioned, the CMS innovation value-added programs, meals, transportation, over-the-counter allowance, uh, dental, fitness programs, these are, high, these are utilized by our members. We want to make sure that we are continuing to offer those. When it comes to our prescription drugs, we know that that is also a point of, uh, of focus for us as we go forward. We want to make sure that we have comparable formularies, and we also want to assess alternative formulary approaches as part of this RFP. And finally, 
not just do we want some predictability in the year-over-year -year rate increases or stabilized rates. We want to make sure that we have increased transparency for our CFO, Iftikhar Hussein, for our lead actuary, Mike Clark at Aon, and that process that begins in December of every year and goes right through this board presentations that we have in May and June. So we want to have transparency into the rates, costs, CMS revenue amounts, and claims. Finally, as we've mentioned before, we do want to ensure that we continue to have best-in-class services from our selected PPO carrier. We want to make sure they have experience in transitioning not just retirees and their dependents from when they would, say, take over a plan from an incumbent, but experience in moving large groups of retirees and their dependents. We want to make sure that they are here to support the San Francisco Health Service System when we reach out to our members who have not reached Medicare eligibility but are approaching Medicare eligibility so they understand what is involved in that process and we get to them in a timely fashion to help make that a very smooth transition. And finally, we know that we have exceptional subject matter expertise when it comes to Medicare plans and administration, both in-house here at HSS and with our actuaries at Aon. We also want to make sure that our partner that we select as part of this RFP continues to have leading best-in-class expertise in this area as well to pro provide us a num an another area for us to really improve care for our members. All right. Finally, we want to make sure that we are narrowing the scope of who can be a prospective bidder for this RFP. We know this is an extensive process for both our panel members, for our team, and for our partners at Aon. As such, we're going to work on narrowing who is qualified to bid. We usually call this minimum qualifications. These will be presented in the RFP that we will release sometime around December of this year. But again, we are going to have specific requirements to their experience with MAPD populations, specific sizes of populations. We want to make sure that they can meet our need for that passive PPO in-network versus out-of-network, no complexity for our members requirement. We want to make sure that they can provide gain-sharing agreements. Uh, we've presented, uh, you know, again, some shared savings agreements to you previously. Uh, I think this board is familiar with them as our ACOs or accountable care partnerships or bundled payments. But it's important to note that gain sharing is an additional a benefit that we could have that is a little less riskier than going with shared savings. Gain sharing kind of allows us to have a situation whereby we focus on cost reduction and where it provides incentives to physicians who may not be with a hospital or be with a hospital as an employee to decrease inpatient costs and Im improve from prior year performance. Again, this is a much lower risk because it does not require reductions in utilizations of services, which impact revenue, but rather focusing on the share of inpatient costs and to realize those as a partnership with carriers and physicians. Again, supporting our Medicare A and B as well as Part B only members and, our, and reducing the need for split families. And again, meeting or exceeding the commitments to financial transparency. All right, at a high level, this is gonna be our RFP schedule. During the next approximately one month, we will be collecting board and stakeholder input. That information, because after this I will present on our communications blackout to ensure that everything is done transparency and in writing. All of that import is to be provided to HSS in writing. You may mail it to us, but we also prefer if you use email. You may send it directly to my email, 
michael.visconti at sfgov.org. We will collect that input. That will uh, inform the final RFP, which will be released sometime around December 8th. We will have a pre-proposal conference with prospective bidders. As I've discussed in my prior presentations and as we are expecting, we are expecting to have interest from some of the largest carriers in this space and in California. We're gonna have that pre-proposal conference around December 15th. And then we'll have a deadline for specific legal requirements to ensure that we can confidently and, um, uh, and uh, confidentially uh, speak with prospective bidders, share the necessary claims and census information to allow us to get the most responsive and informed bids. Over the next two to three months, we will have a staggered process whereby we receive non-financial responses, answer non-financial questions, and get financial responses and review those with the, the, the panel. Finally, as we did before, we will present uh, all of the uh, kind of observations, summaries, and our recommendation to this board. Uh, this will be either at the end of May or the beginning of June of next year. And as we did when we did the non-Medicare RFP, it'll ultimately the board's determination to accept that recommendation or not. Mm -mm. Do you mind right. repeating your email address again? Absolutely, thank you, Commissioner Svansky. It's Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L uh, -E dot Visconti, V as in Victor, I-S-C-O-N-T-I at sfgov.org. Oh, okay. And just for everyone's uh, information, this can be uh, also found on the SFHSS website. We have all of our RFPs posted publicly as well as my contact information. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, now we're open to any questions, comments from the board or the public. Thank you. Please. Um, I have several questions. I don't know whether to ask them all one time or one at a time. Uh, number one, um, is this is the expected outcome that there'll be one? The staff will make a recommendation for one um, PPO group, or is there an option for two if the provider networks don't necessarily overlap? Can you address that? Thank you, Dr. Follinsby. Uh, there will be one selected carrier as a result of this RFP. There's a number of reasons for that, but the two leading ones is one, for lack of complexity. Two, we're looking at a nationwide PPO plan. And I suppose the third one would be, from a competitive standpoint, the best way to get the most effective responses to this RFP is to say that we are guaranteeing that 17,000 population to the selected respondent. Okay, thank you very much. Um, has the panel, I know there's an independent panel that will be essentially carrying out this process. Has that been chosen? Can you let us know what the composition of that panel is? All right. Um, what I can tell you about the panel is that we're gonna follow the same requirements that we have for prior panels. Uh, we again, we hold to our, ourselves to a higher standard than other city procurement processes, but we make sure that one, the panel is no more than 50% representatives of SFHSS, as we would call the awarding department. We make sure that the panel is also representative of the people of San Francisco and our, and our excuse me, mm, our employee population. We wanna make sure that it's diverse, representing lots of dem dem different demographics. But finally, we wanna make sure that the panel members have the subject matter expertise necessary for this scope of work. Now, we are not expecting every single panel member to be a subject matter expert in every aspect of this RFP. The panel works together as a team. 
all of their discussions are done together as a team, and we provide ourselves in those panel discussions to answer any technical questions that may arise that they may not have under their specific subject matter expertise. So your criteria seem quite appropriate and consistent. I guess the question is, where are you in the process of, um, of developing this panel? We have a number of names that we are looking into right now, but again, we have not finalized the names, nor would we actually disclose the names of the actual panel members until the end of the RFP process. This is because we want to make sure that there is no impropriety, no unfair communications, no side conversations whatsoever. And while I'll be discussing this at a, for another board uh, action item, we will do our usual communications blackout period for this. So that's the kind of information we do not want being disclosed. And um, thank you very much. Um, you know, I think one of the criteria is the robust, uh, robust and stable provider network, uh, which I'm assuming includes both medical centers or hospitals, but also the providers. And I think that this has been something that we've heard from members over and over again, not just with this population, but with all of our uh, population and all of our, all of our vendors as well, including dental. And I think that's quite a challenge. And so I guess I'm curious to know what criteria you use and how that criteria might be validated, since it seems to me that we always run into roadblocks every time we ask this question of our, of our vendors. That's a great question. Going back to look at what we did for our non-Medicare RFP in 2020 for the 2022 plan year, we had an extensive uh, review and alignment of what were going to be the, I think we had it in one of our presentations, a list of what additional provider facilities, physician groups, et cetera, would be included or that were not previously included um, with our prior HMOs. We'll be doing a similar, very in-depth analysis. It will be led by our team at Aon, Mike Clark, Ann Thompson. We did a great job on this last time. We will also make sure that when we do present this to the board in the end of May, beginning of June of next year, that those changes will be highlighted for you in our presentation. Great, thank you. And I just, I'm sorry, just one more question. Is that please, okay? Please. Sorry, I'm dominating this. Um, you know, you talked about uh, benefits. And of course, there's open enrollment for Medicare plans. And so anyone who turns their phone on or TV or whatever just sees a plethora of organizations that are supposed to help you decide between the hundreds and hundreds of often for profit uh, Medicare. Uh, plans out there. Um, and they all talk about all kinds of benefits. And one of the questions that we've asked as a board, and I think are still looking for answers, is that we've approved certain benefits and uh, that have been expanded in terms of meals and transportation. But what we haven't heard is the actual utilization and benefit that has come out of it. They make sense, but we haven't, haven't heard a lot of feedback. And so I think hopefully this plan, if you're going to be looking into be these benefits, um, we'll also see what the plans have in order to try to judge what benefits uh, actually are working or not working. Uh, we ask our dental providers to do this all the time, uh, <laughs> over and over again, and it'd be nice to see this expanded to our medical providers um, as well, um, because I think this is critical. And then one last um, comment um, under sort of best-in-class um, uh, issues, and I would put wellness in there. Um, and wellness, um, I think, is something that we all think, as, as speaking for myself as a board member, but other board members uh, repeatedly over and again, wellness in terms of, you know, health, activity, weight, uh, what kind of, we now know that obesity is a disease, not a lifestyle problem, 
um, and and um, but it impacts all kinds of other you know health problems in terms of heart, kidney, etc. And so we'd like to hear a little bit about a focus on wellness programs that are provided as well within the applicants. Okay. So just to re uh, just to make sure I've got these right not just covering what additional value adds, CMS innovation benefits like meals and transportation they offer, but actual utilization and how we're gonna improve that utilization for our population. For the benefits, yeah, for the benefits side, but then the wellness is a new, was a new category in okay. your uh, best in class list. A lot of disease stuff and all that, which we all understand, but, mm -hmm. but also um, wellness is sort of a refocus away from disease, but also a focus to health. Thank you, Dr. Follinsby. Thank you for the time. Not at all. Any other questions or comments? A compliment. I, it's hard to ask a, a, a more robust series of thorough questions than uh, my colleague, and I'm grateful for that. But a uh, compliment to uh, the presentation is very clear. I think it outlined uh, not only for us as a board, uh, but for our membership as well, the process. And I know there's going to be a lot of interest. So thank you for uh, being very transparent with how to communicate those concerns to you and your team. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Canning. I just have a quick question. You said something at the very end of your calendar presentation mm -hmm. that um, you, you'll bring something before our board to adopt or mm -hmm. to approve or not. Right. And so just, just totally out of curiosity, what happens if we turn down your recommendation? Great, great question. Um, one thing that we're doing right now is we're gonna continue with our rates and benefits renewal process just as we do every single year. It's a little bit added work for all of us. We did this again back in 2020 for 2022. That is our backup plan. We will continue to proceed with that. If anything happens, this goes off the rails, the board sees our recommendation, does not agree with our recommendation, that's what we will default to. Great, thank, thank you. you. If no more discussion, we'll open it up for public comment. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. Good afternoon, commissioners. Dennis Kruger, active and retired firefighters and spouses. Uh, one thing that wasn't covered at all that I was wondering if they could uh, maybe get a, some explanation of is Kaiser with design changes. What that entails, what that means. Seeing how one in three people in California probably belong to Kaiser I was just wondering what these changes would be. And then again, the second part is early retirees. I didn't hear much about that. Is this in the RFP process? And that's why it hasn't been really discussed. And if there can be any explanation of that, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kruger. Um, may I answer the questions? Please. Thank you, President Howe, or Vice President Howe. Um, again, uh, as with regard to Kaiser, again, this will be discussed as part of our June presentation to this board through September for the second half of this RFP process. We are focusing on the PPO population now, then Kaiser. 
and our KP, uh, KPSA, or Kaiser Permanente Senior Advantage population. As to early retirees, our early retirees are covered by our non-Medicare plans, which were addressed in our RFP in 2020 for the 2022 plan year. However, as I mentioned earlier, they are a component of this RFP in the sense that there are a lot of people who are, quote, early or non-Medicare RFP, uh, sorry, early or non-Medicare Advantage members of ours who will become Medicare Advantage members by the time this plan would go into effect in 2025. I discussed earlier how a key part of this will be about that transition process and preparing them for Medicare plans. But again, those are covered by our non-Medicare plans. We have our multiple HMO options, our ASOPPO option as well. Um, and again, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this presentation, we are on a very nice cycle right now with these RFPs. That will include doing our non-Medicare plans again in a routine basis. Can I just, just make sure that I understand um, completely? Uh, number one, this RFP is for the Medicare population only. And um, there are two types of plans. There's the HMO plan, which we have Kaiser, which is not part of this process. So there may be other uh, Medicare HMO plans out there, but we're not addressing any of those. This is only the Medicare PPO options, of which there are undoubtedly a number of plans. I guess the question in follow-up is how many of those plans are you expect might be interested? Are you outreaching to? And how are you outreaching? So again, we great questions. Thank you, Dr. Follinsby. Let me start with the, um, as you mentioned, uh, Director Yant kicked us off with the breakdown of the difference between our United Healthcare population and, of course, our Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente Senior Advantage population. Obviously, the big difference here, again, the MAPD through United Healthcare is a nationwide PPO. For Kaiser Permanente, as mentioned by Director Yant, we're talking about, for the most part, all California service areas for Kaiser, it's most of California, and again, Washington, Oregon, Hawaii locations since 2018. So we're starting with that nationwide PPO. <clears throat> the second part of this is that we are going to focus on this PPO population uh, with respect to um, the, the kind of the outcomes we discussed. We want to make sure that the Let's see. Actually, if you could repeat the second part of your question real quick. I think I... Um, I don't think there was a... Well, the second part was how many um, Medicare PPO um, vendors are there out there? And obviously, they'll self-select, but you have some... How many expect you expect will be interested and may fit the first cut mm -hmm. of criteria in terms of financials or size or something? Thank you. Um, this is information from our team at Aon, but we are expecting responses from at least the respondents to our RFI in 2021. We had responses from um, what, what is now called Elevance, but it was um, you know Anthem at the time. Uh, we've got Aetna. We have a response from uh, United Healthcare, of course, as the incumbent. Uh, we expect also a response from Humana. And uh, uh, we could also see responses from Cigna, Blue Shield of California. Um, and uh, we also had a response from HealthNet previously, which is Centene. Um, for, based on 2022 data, um, for the total Medicare population bro broken down by firm or affiliate, in this order, we're looking at United Healthcare being at 28% uh, nationwide, Humana being at 18%, Blue Shield plans overall 14%, um, CVS Health at 11, Kaiser Permanente at 6, 
Centene or HealthNet uh, for us here at five, and then we get into a lot of the smaller insurers. So as, you, as I mentioned, that the largest number of groups here, we've either already had responses in our RFI, or we expect to get a response from them based on that initial outreach in the RFI. But again, we will be reaching out to each of them independently. We will post this publicly. We have a lot of connections at all these places. This will all done, be done very transparent, uh, transparently as well. Thank you, Dr. Follinsby. Thank, thank you. Uh, we'll continue with public comment. And if anyone wants to approach the podium, you're welcome to do so now. Hello, Fred Sanchez again from Protect Our Benefits. Uh, competition is something we've always talked about, and this RFP they're talking about, you'll have to choose probably just one single entity like United Healthcare or Anthem or whatever. But I know that's easier probably for HSS to administer when you only have one uh, entity, but that lack of three or four different providers is what drives the competition to keep costs down. So we're always going to be in favor of trying to get those multiple providers to keep our costs down. Uh, when I see this, try to get a three to five year rate guarantee, that might, I wonder how they do that. I mean, uh, is that in writing where they have to specifically say, hey, we you know, have an annualized, it's almost like uh, you get your 2% cost of living increase every year. But uh, this is only gonna be for the Medicare people, but I look at, we talk about these early retirees. Obviously there was no rate guarantees for that group because who even represents that group? And you know they got a 14% rate increase this time and it's like, you know, that took their cost of living away for about the last three or four years combined. Yep. Uh, how do we get some kind of guarantee for that group? I mean, that's not in this RFP, I understand that, but how do we address that group and the, the astronomical rate increases for that group? You know, who represents them? And uh, because it's not the act of unions, how, how do we address that issue? I'm just trying to figure out. And, you know, I don't know if you have an answer for that. I'd like to defer that. We're having a discussion on the early retirees, if, uh, if that's okay, Michael. Or, yeah. I think that that would and, and have also, more better context in that discussion, but we'll keep it in mind. Okay. And so that we can go through public comment, maybe you can come up at the end and address all the outstanding matters. Happy to, Vice President Thank Howe. You. Thank you. Anyone else in the room is welcome to approach the podium now for in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have one caller on the phone line. Zero have entered the comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Mr. Visconti. <laughs> Thank you, Vice President Howe. Um, yes, as mentioned by Director Yan a minute ago, we will have a very in-depth discussion and description of how these rates are generated, both for the 
Medicare population as well as for the non-Medicare population. And I'll defer to the experts there with Aon and our CFO, Iftikhar Hussein, for that description. But I think one, option, one item brought up by Mr. Sanchez is very top of my list of the, uh, the schedule that we're doing right now. This is the opportunity for stakeholder input. That includes items that members of the public, members of this board, feel are important aspects of this RFP that should be considered. These are the kinds of items that we want presented to us so we can take them into consideration and, if appropriate, include them in our RFP to make sure that respondents address those aspects of care for our retirees. Thank you. Thank you. So, so to be clear, we, we have Kaiser and United Healthcare, and there isn't any plan to have a third for... Currently, there is no plan to have a third. Too bad. Again, an item for us to review. This is the kind of stakeholder input. I've got it written down here from both your comment here and from the public. We're going to take that into consideration. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the robust discussion and the input as well. And uh, we will now move on to our next agenda item. Thank you. Thank you, Vice President Helm. Agenda item number 10 is a blackout period notice, November 9th, 2023 through June 2024. This is an action item and will be presented by Michael Visconti, SFHSS Contracts Administration Manager. And what we'll see on the screen is the blackout memo. Hello again, Commissioners. Michael Visconti, Contracts Administration Manager for San Francisco Health Service System. As mentioned in my prior presentation, we will be doing our usual blackout notice. This will be to prevent all improper communications during an RFP process. We want things to be transparent. We want them to be in writing. We want to make sure that anyone who could potentially be a panel member, any member of this board who will ultimately in May or June be ruling on the results of this RFP and members of our team And members of our team who are going to be working on this RFP have no communications that are done, or as we call it, ex parte communications, apart from what is documented and part of this RFP process. This will begin today. It will extend all the way through the end of the RFP process and the end of the rates and benefits process. As per the question from Vice President Howe earlier, as we know, there are two possibilities at the end of this, the results of the RFP or if the recommendation is rejected by the board, again, the simultaneous process that's been going on with rates and benefits. So we want to make sure that that communications blackout period extends through both of those timelines. Thank you. Thank you. Colleagues, any questions or comments? It feels like we just emerged from a blackout period. So. <laughs> we did. So, all right. Uh, may I have a motion and a second, please? I move that we accept the rec staff recommendation for a blackout period um, from November 9, 2023 through June 2024 to cover this um, issue of the second. RFE. Second. It's been properly moved and seconded. We'll open it up for public comment. 
Thank you, Vice President Helm. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have one caller on the phone line. Zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll take a roll call vote. Roll call vote starting with Vice President Howe. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Commissioner Follinsby. Aye. And Commissioner Zavansky. Aye. It's been unanimously approved. Thank you. So we will take a 10 minute break before diving into uh, the two board education items, followed by um, updates and the closed session. So it is now by my computer 229, so I'll see you back here at 239. Thank you. Hello. Hello. San Francisco Government Television.
Holly, if you would please take a roll call vote. Thank you, Vice President Helm. A roll call vote starting with Vice President Helm. Present. Commissioner Breslin. Here. Commissioner Canning. Present. Commissioner Follinsby. Present. And Commissioner Zvansky. Present. With that, we have quorum. Great, thank you very much. Um, and would you please call the next agenda item? Yes, thank you. Agenda item number 11, board education, benefit design, benchmarking, and plan design influence on member plan use behavior. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Ann Thompson, senior account executive with Aon, and Mike Clark, lead actuary from Aon. Good afternoon, welcome. Am I on? Okay, there I am. You're on. <laughs> Couldn't hear myself for a second. Ann Thompson with Aon. Uh, I'll be joined here in a moment um, by my colleague, Mike Clark. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you'll recall that we have endeavored on a multiple part uh, board education kind of series over the last several months. And so we are moving into that next stage, uh, which is the benefit design benchmarking and plan design influence on member plan use behavior. So on page three, uh, we will uh, just refresh real quickly on the background um, and the board education modules that we've been going through and what will be coming up next. Uh, today we'll focus on that uh, design benchmarking, looking at the impact of design components on plan utilization, HMO plan design competitive landscape, and plan design program incentives to drive optimized health behaviors. And then we'll close by, again, kind of looking at where uh, we'll be going in the next couple of months on that education. On page four, uh, again, <laughs> a little repetitive here because we have to remind you why we're here today reviewing this presentation uh, is module tool two of the benefit design um, offering and we will dive right in. On page five, uh, so when we look at uh, plan design changes, there's really two elements that drive recommendations. Uh, one is to generate lower renewal rate increases. Uh, so when we modify plan design, um, the, the the premium or the budget rate uh, will be adjusted and that then flows through to contributions that the employee, early retiree, or the plan sponsor pays. Uh, so that is one um, approach or one uh, reason we look at plan design changes. Uh, the others encourage shifts in sight of care decisions that are clinically appropriate, meaning um, when there are different uh, or cost structures to say an office visit or an urgent care or an ER visit, uh, that we want to ensure that we're encouraging the appropriate use of say an urgent care um, for urgent care needs, uh, ER obviously for emergency needs, and for things that may be able to wait to see uh, your primary care provider at an office visit. Um, things like lab and radiology services, uh, doing that at your physician's offices uh, versus and freestanding facilities rather than an inpatient or outpatient hospital facility. Uh, and then again, we've talked I think in the past about outpatient surgery versus inpatient surgery um, at hospitals. Uh, on page six, we wanted to, uh, page six and actually the next page, we wanted to just take a look at your benefits. So we do this every year in our rates and benefits cycle. Um, we don't always look at it kind of side by side. What does that plan design look, look like? So on this first page, we're just looking at main structure of the design. So you have three main health plan structures being that first column, which is your active employees and early retirees HMO plans. Uh, then you, in the middle of your active employee and early retiree PPO plan, and then of course on the right you have your um, retiree Medicare Advantage PPO uh, with UHC and HMO with Kaiser, which we just spoke about on our last agenda item. 
uh, we want to look at some of the key features across each of these plans. So with an HMO, for example, the network is in-network only. Uh, with the PPO, you have in and out of network coverage. And with a uh, Medicare Advantage plan for Kaiser, you have uh, in-network only as an HMO. And with UHC, you have the concept of any willing provider um, under that PPO plan. Preventive care, uh, no member cost share under any of these plans. Uh, deductibles, generally on the PPO plan, not HMOs. Uh, fixed dollar co-payments, uh, generally again with HMOs versus PPOs. Uh, Co-insurance, uh, you can see here across the line, I'm not gonna read all this to you, and all of them with an, uh, with an out-of-pocket maximum at the end of the year for protection, financial protection of members. On page seven, uh, we wanted to go a little bit deeper on the plan design elements. And so uh, what you can see here is your current plan design features. And that first column is the Blue Shield HMO, UHC EPO, and the HealthNet Canopy Care plans. So these plans all have the exact, pretty much the exact plan design. There might be minor nuances in coverage, but in terms of these key features, they are all the same across those plans. Uh, for Kaiser HMO, you can see a lot of the things are similar, but some are different. Uh, for, for example, uh, the physician visit under Kaiser is $20. Under the other HMO plans, it's $25. For the PPO, you can see that in and out of network coverage that has a deductible and generally co-insurance. Uh, and then you can see the last two columns are the UHC Medicare Advantage and the Kaiser Permanente Senior Advantage. Again, no deductibles, um, out-of-pocket maximums, and uh, primarily co-pays, with some differences in between the two plans. So that was to kind of level set us on where we are today. Uh, one of the questions that came forth was, what does research say about plan design influence on member uh, plan use? And so we went out um, to our favorite Google um, and talked to a lot of our subject matter experts at, within Aon to look and see what has there been. Um, and so there's been a general concern over the years that when members have to pay a significant um, portion or all of the healthcare costs, um, they may not seek the care that is needed or purchase the needed prescription drug. There has been a lot of research um, as far back as the 70s with the RAND study, which we'll talk a little bit about on the next page, uh, when first, plans first started to introduce member cost sharing at time of service. Before that, um, it was you know blue plans where you just kind of went to the doctor and there wasn't really that cost sharing um, um, aspect. And then research did accelerate uh, in the 90s and 2000s. You'll see on a couple pages from now that that primarily focused on high deductible health plans as that concept um, became new to the market um, and understanding the impact of those on um, member or on behavior of uh, utilization. On page nine, um, the, I mean, the big one that everybody talks about is RAND. Um, it was uh, done over 1971 to 1986. Um, and there were five key findings um, that we've listed here. Uh, we've also included the link uh, to the full report below. There is a lot of information here um, if you really wanted to dig into it. And so the five primary findings were that cost sharing reduced spending for healthcare services. Uh, participants with cost sharing made fewer medical visits and were admitted to hospitals less frequently. They reduced spending, uh, reduced spending resulted entirely from less use of care. The costs of care were not affected. Cost-sharing reduced the use of effective and less effective services about equally, and cost-sharing had no detrimental effects on participants' health except for the sickest and the poorest patients. 
Again, there is more information um, on that link should you wish to dive in. And on page 10, just again, not going to read this to you. This was uh, some of the more recent research um, that is out there was really looking at high deductible health plans or consumer directed health plans, I think as they originally uh, noted, um, where it's that deductible first before you have any kind of uh, co-insurance or co-pays and looking at the impact of those on um, behavior um, and really there wasn't <clears throat> well you can see the information that was uh, shared here on the results but since you do not offer these plans it's not entirely relevant to uh, your structure and your plan offering today and now I'm going to turn it over to my colleague Good afternoon, Commissioners. Mike Clark from Aon. Um, so with that as background, we're gonna pivot now to talk about uh, benchmarking, what we're finding in comparing SFHSS uh, plan designs as well as uh, contributions to a number of different benchmarks uh, that we evaluate. You know, in general, when you look at health plan member cost sharing, you're really talking about two things, either through the plan design features, um, you know, the co-payments, deductibles, and Ann just walked through, as well as contributions, and plan sponsors can certainly vary uh, where they put their emphasis um, on member cost sharing. As you'll see in the following page, uh, for SFHSS plans, the majority of that average cost sharing is through member contributions. Um, so page 12, this is a chart reproduced from our annual health value initiative benchmarking study that uh, for the past cycle was part of uh, Executive Director Yant's uh, director's report in April uh, to the board. Uh, we focus on HMOs because 97% of SFHSS employees are enrolled in the HMO plans versus only 3% of the PPO. And you can see where, you know, I've indicated in those uh, red rectangles the, you know, where SFHSS falls on the employee plan design um, out-of-pocket uh, overall average $608 uh, for 2023 you know, relative to a set of national comparators. Uh, so national public sector benchmark, we collect uh, jumbo employers with 25 or 1,000 or more covered employees, um, a subset of Fortune 500 we collect data for, labor market, which is Northern California uh, for SFHSS, as well as the HVI is the full study of about 600 employers. So you'll see that the employer uh, cost sharing overall at 83% is higher than the other national benchmarks. But when you flip to uh, the next page, we also took a look at the uh, 10 county employers that are part of the 10 county survey uh, that's performed every spring, as well as CalPERS HMO data uh, that Yuri Goligorsky of SFHSS collects. So we never really talk about CalPERS as part of the 10 county survey, but if you actually look back in the appendix, kind of later in the study, uh, Yuri also compiles CalPERS plan design information uh, just for a resource reference. So uh, very helpful here. You know, when you look at the SFHSS plan designs, you know, if you look at $1 of total cost of care and then how that allocates between the member for the plan design portion, the co-payments and all that, uh, versus what's paid by the plan, uh, the plan is paying on average 96.6% of the total cost of services. Uh, members are paying that remaining 3.4%. Uh, that does compare to about 12% uh, what employees pay in our national benchmarks. But again, as we look at the CalPERS and uh, 10 county data, on the next page, uh, the 
SFHSS designs are actually very similar to what we observe in the HMO data uh, for public sector, you know, large counties in California, as well as CalPERS. So um, on the left side, you'll see the plan design features, and this is the data that URI collects uh, on an annual basis. So across deductibles, physician office visit co-payments, um, emergency room, cost sharing, hospital inpatient, and pharmacy. Um, and then you'll see four columns worth of data. So the left side are the SFHSS uh, Blue Shield HMO plans, along with the UHC EPO and the HealthNet Canopy Care Plan. So as Ann noted, all of them have the same plan design. So you'll see uh, the co-payments across these services for each. Um, and then the SFHSS Kaiser Permanente uh, non-Medicare HMO plan. And then the right side is a range of typical features so that when you look at the 10 county employer data that's contained in that annual survey, uh, most recently produced by SFHSS in March, um, what the typical feature is as well as the maximum feature. And that's where you can compare, you know, the level of plan design elements, um, in this case, flat dollar co-payments uh, among the public sector employers that compare to SFHSS. And you'll see a few uh, footnotes at the bottom of page 14. So when we look at actual, uh, you know, plan cost for these services, are they influencing plan utilization choices when you go across uh, these range of service types? And this is from data that Kaiser provides us uh, as background information that they use for their renewal process, where they report on the total cost, uh, average cost for each of these service types uh, for, the, for the plan year, in this case, the most recently completed plan year, 2022 and then how that compares to the member co-payment, and then the member percentage of total is just the member co-pay divided by the total cost. So what you'll see is for the highest cost services, uh, the plan is paying in the case of inpatient admissions and outpatient surgeries over 99% of the average cost of those services for both active employees and early retirees and then about 98% of the cost of the brand drugs. So this is 2022 data. And then on the next page, you know, we worked with Kaiser to take a multi-year view of how the total cost of services has changed and we picked 2019 on purpose. We wanted to alleviate any of the concerns about what cost did around the pandemic um, in 2020 and 2021. So just looking at a comparison of the year right before the pandemic started, 2019 uh, versus 2022, you will see that some costs have actually uh, decreased over that three-year period. You know, the annualized change on both physician office visits and uh, generic prescriptions um, actually reduced. But the cost elements that increased the most on a percentage basis um, on an annualized change over the course of those three years were the same three elements I pointed out on the last page, where the member cost sharing is the lowest you know, percentage of, of total average cost, one to 2%. We also have some data from both Kaiser and Blue Shield uh, just showing for SFHSS how utilization for inpatient hospital admissions, outpatient visits, 
and prescription drugs um, are higher than those overall book of business Northern California health plan averages. So the SFHSS lines and these three graphs are the blue lines. Um, the total book of business for Kaiser is the orange line. And then the subset of Kaiser's book of business that is public sector employers um, is the gray line. Now what you'll see is SFHSS tracks pretty closely to the Kaiser book of business averages for public sector, um, but then all of which are higher than the overall uh, Kaiser book of business data for um, utilization of inpatient admissions, outpatient visits, and prescription drugs. And then on page 18, uh, this is data that Blue Shield provides us. Uh, most recently, uh, the data is from the timeframe of services incurred April 2022 through March 2023. And what you'll see here is you look down the data and kind of what I pointed out um, on the right side is the variance from the Northern California Book of Business for Blue Shield compared to SFHSS is all of those utilization metrics are exceeding uh, the Blue Shield Book of Business data uh, for these inpatient, outpatient, and professional service categories. So on page 19, you know, how plan design and sense member plan utilization choices, you know, there's that element of financial accountability uh, for use of services and prescriptions. You know, part of the goal is to where clinically appropriate, and I stress where clinically appropriate, um, incent lower intensity uh, forms of utilization. And the example I give here is, you know, if, if someone can be successfully addressed um, through a physician office visit or urgent care in lieu of an emergency room, you know, certainly lower cost sharing for those services helps to encourage that. Now, on the flip side, if you go to the emergency room and you need to be admitted to the hospital, that copayment is waived um, if you're admitted. You know, certainly to encourage enrollment into certain available plans and then just strike that overall balance in member sharing uh, between contributions and plan design sharing features. Uh, page 20 captures the uh, two most previous uh, design change recommendations that were presented by myself uh, to this board. Um, you know, just um, indicating the uh, recommendations were not approved. Uh, you know, just showing what those recommendations were for the Kaiser active and early retiree HMO plans and uh, what the financial impact, uh, you know, was behind those recommendations uh, that you'll see here on page 20. So um, there was one in May 2020 for the 2021 plan year, and then a second uh, for uh, on May 25th of this year for the 2024 plan year. So in conclusion, um, you know, I guess four key points that Ann and I want to make uh, in this in this education discussion. You know, first, SFHSS plan design features, um, they are less requiring to members than typical national employer plans. You know, we see that in our broader um, health value initiative benchmarking, but they are in line with large public sector employers in California, uh, as we saw with the comparison to the 10 county and the CalPERS data. The use of flat dollar co-payments, uh, which are prominent in the SFHSS, um, HMO and Medicare Advantage plans, as they remain at same dollar amounts year after year. It just means the burden of those 
healthcare cost trends uh, fall to the plan. Uh, plan design changes, as Ann articulated, are considered for two primary reasons, you know, cost savings to the plan, as well as encouragement um, of that care redirection element. And then as SFHSS is considering with the RFP, you know, we consider it prudent to periodically evaluate uh, the role plan design features play in member care choices, including the type of provider uh, and the plan enrolled, and consider those periodic increases as appropriate um, to keep up with healthcare cost trend increases. So final slide, um, as Ian mentioned, this is module two. Uh, there'll be a module three on future, future state opportunities for SFHSS at the next board meeting, and then in early 2024, additional board education uh, through fiduciary uh, presentation in January, and uh, leadership insights from SFHSS employers in February. So Ann and I are happy to field. Any questions you have, commissioners? Thank you, Mike. Any questions or comments? Dr. Follinsby. Yeah, uh, just a comment. Thank you very much. This is quite comprehensive and it's very detailed, and it's a reminder of what we've already been doing and, and trying to focus on the future as well. It fits into the RFP process as well, um, because when we look, for, just take out the, the emergency room issues, the question for each health plan is how do you triage, how, what service do you provide to help members triage to the right service? And I know that, you know, uh, I can, as a Kaiser member, I can speak that if you go to the emergency room at Kaiser, before you're registered in the emergency room, you get screened. And if it's actually appropriate to go to the urgent care, so you avoid the emergency room costs, et cetera, and chaos, you go immediately to emergent care, and they will wheel you over. Um, and we've asked health plans to be accountable for where can members find non-urgent care? How hard is it? How many d contracts do they have? You know, at least in my neighborhood, um, there are several urgent care <laughs> clinics available that are all private and that almost have contracts with, with different health plans, um, not Kaiser, but others. And so we need some accountability in all this to sort of see what the health plans do to help you know, get the, our members to the right place at the right time because members can't be expected to self-triage necessarily um, based on their, you know, their, their own medical background or lack thereof. You want to speak to the data work on Um <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you for bringing up the urgent care. I know that was a question um, you had September yeah. um, board meeting. Um, that is something that we're working on bringing back to you, I think, in December. Sorry. Um, that we'll kind of look at the urgent care maps and then um, some other questions we've kind of collected over the last couple of months. So we'll be bringing you back more to that. And I appreciate that, and I'm not, you know, asking for that information now. I'm just saying that these are the kinds of things that when we begin to screen, you know, vendors in the future that help us make decisions about the appropriateness of care, uh, the missteps, but also the correct steps that are cost-saving to everybody, not only our members, but also the employees, you know, groups, et cetera. So um, employer groups, et cetera. I know that I in in our neighborhood we do have two or three urgent cares. I mean they're not that far. We can't away. hear you. Into the microphone. We we have urgent cares in our neighborhood for sure, and um, that's where I usually go before I go to the ER. So do some people just go to the ER? Is, is that really? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Past urgent care. A lot of people. Yes. Do.
Well, they, they, they will both. No wonder. Yeah. <laughs> Your little condom. Yeah, they will, uh, <laughs> they will refer you to ER if, if urgent care can't do it. Yeah. I know that, you know, but anyway, statistics. Is there any effort to encourage um, more urgent care centers in, in various neighborhoods? Because um, what I find is most people don't have a sense of the difference between urgent care and emergent care because they're panicked about whatever is going on. Um, and so they're seeking that immediately if it's nothing you can make an appointment for, they think of emergency. Um, but urgent care is, is equally as competent and much less expensive. Um, but I don't know if medical groups are considering having more urgent care options or what's out there in that way, if medical groups are organized sufficiently to do that, because it's not inexpensive to set up that option. Somebody has to have it, has to have that office and the staff and the, you know, ability to do that. So is there any trend that you notice or not? I, I said in the director's report today that we are going to map out the urgent care centers and look at the capacity issues that may or may not exist. Um, we all have personal experiences, but we don't have data. So we're going to look to putting that together uh, for a future meeting. Okay. So we're going to be doing that. Thank you. So I have a question. I'm not sure I know how to articulate the, the, the thoughts that are swimming in my head, but um, it seems that when you pointed us when you reminded us of our past two recent efforts to introduce plan design changes, um, they weren't necessarily to change behavior. We were seeking some sort of relief for some of the premiums that were that we were going to experience in in that subsequent plan year. So, um, how would you encourage our board to think about plan design? Is it to the end of trying to encourage different behavior, or what? Yeah, from my perspective, it's a couple different elements um, when you look at considering plan design changes. So, you know, we definitely talked about, um, you know, the cost-saving element. But I do think, um, and what we've worked with other employers on through plan design changes, is evaluating what are the downstream shifts that we're seeing towards, for instance, um, you know, emergency room care that maybe is assessed as non-emergent in total um, with how a health plan will categorize uh, those types of visits. Are we seeing more of those non-emergent visits shift to primary care, urgent environments, or even a virtual care um, environment? With inpatient hospitalizations, would a increase in copayment do more to encourage, um, you know, more surgeries that are being performed inpatient but could be performed in an outpatient setting? Um, are we seeing shifts in those uh, services that way? So I think there is a recognition that clearly, you know, care in these settings, you know, there's definitely care that is appropriate for those settings. But through plan design shifts, trying to help members assess, you know, could, 
could there be an alternative care setting that delivers a similar or better clinical outcome that you know the financial um, differential in a plan design copayment could go into the factoring of a member working with um, his or her physician to you know kind of decide where is the best form of care um, that could deliver a quality and cost optimal outcome. I feel like what you just described kind of requires um, a, a lead, lots of lead up conversations behind the introduction of a particular plan design change. Because I think that what has happened in my memory of these past two events is that the conversation immediately shifted to who's going to foist, who's going to bear the burden of the additional cost. And, and that was the driving force of some of our decisions. And so which I'm not suggesting that that's not important, but I think I want us to be able to meaningfully consider all of the elements. So yeah, and I think you've characterized those two most recent recommendations well. They were designed um, somewhat in response to the level of renewal that we were getting, you know, in this case from the Kaiser organization, because both of those uh, recommendations were for the Kaiser Active and um, Early Retiree Plan. If I could just, you know, point out that even the data that, that you showed from the RAND Corporation for some of this in terms of the effect of co-pays, um, a, um, was somewhat old, oh, 2014, I think, um, and I'm hoping there'd be a lot more recent data. And in fact, at least the, study, the, the information that you quoted from that study showed exactly what the board was concerned about, that the higher co-pays had the big, biggest effect on people with chronic disease. And that was what actually led our decision to reject the staff recommendation, was we were concerned about the people who were, our members who were the most ill, who would bear the brunt. And that was actually RAND Corporation data from 2014, if, if I'm not mixing apples and oranges in my memory. But, but, but these are the important things, and they're very complicated. And I think a lot of them are limited by the timing of the data gathering, and healthcare has changed so much since then. Um, I would just quote the one thing that took, took my, got my attention was that in-office charges for lab and radiology may be cheaper, but most in-office labs are not CLIA, associate, uh, CLIA you know, uh, licensed uh, for, um, for quality. Uh, they don't go through the, and so, the, yeah, you may be getting a cheap urinalysis, but what's the quality, and who's measuring the quality in an outpatient office for a urinalysis? Same with x-rays. Who's reading that x-ray? It may, cheap may not be quality, and, and how do we define, how do we document the quality is being delivered um, independent of, of the cost necessarily. Yeah, and I think working with our partners, you know, Kaiser and Blue Shield and UHC to understand that. And I think to your first point, that's part of why we wanted to show the data. There definitely is a difference in the average overall cost of a given service that's paid by a member. Um, you know, we also wanted to show on slide 16 the fact that the highest um, increases in costs over the last three years are also affiliated with those services where the member is paying, you know, less than 1% or in the case of the um, brand drugs, about 2% of the total cost. And as small as those percentages are, they've continued to reduce as those overall cost increases take hold. 
um, you know, it's essentially the plan that's bearing those increases uh, that we illustrated on page 16. Any other comments or questions for Mike or Ann? Thank you very much. All right, if not, we'll open it up for public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Vice President Helm. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment or questions for the board or the presenters. No one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment. And our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, there is one caller on the phone line. No callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Please call the next agenda item. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Agenda item number 12, board education, determining city contributions for SFHSS retiree medical plans. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Mike Clark, lead actuary with Aon. Uh, Mike Clark, Aon. Um, there was a re request at the last meeting to uh, talk through the determination process for city contributions for the SFHSS uh, retiree medical plan. So that's what I'll present on. Um, in August, uh, I did present uh, on healthcare transition from active employment uh, to early retiree status. The document um, here and the discussion today will summarize the approach to determining those city contributions uh, for the retiree health plans. So where we focus more on the early retirees in August, we'll talk through both non-Medicare and Medicare uh, retirees, including city charter language references today. Uh, the city does cover some or all of the cost of retiree health coverage uh, based on the formulas that are defined in the charter. Those amounts do vary by plan as well as by dependent coverage tier. And to contrast with the determination of uh, retiree health care city contributions uh, being done through the charter uh, for the active employees uh, that is handled through memorandums of understanding. And for reference, you'll see a lot of charter language in this presentation. Um, the web link to the current version of the city charter um, is here at the bottom of page two. Now, from a total rates perspective, you know, one question that I'm sure often arises is, you know, how are the rates, the total rates determined? And specifically, why are early retiree rates higher than active employee rates uh, for the same plan? Why are they higher uh, than for Medicare Advantage plans? So uh, why are they higher for um, early retirees versus active employees? The methodology looks at the average health plan utilization and the overall claims uh, spent per member, uh, which are higher for early retirees and for active employees. Um, healthcare needs generally increase with age, and this is the most uh, significant factor that contributes to this. Uh, there's also a government accounting standard that was uh, first announced in 2004 and became effective a couple years later where cost rates are essentially uh, determined separately for active employees and early retirees uh, for accounting reasons. 
So there used to be pay-as-you-go or cash basis accounting uh, for these plans uh, for the cost of benefits other than pensions, in other words, uh, retiree <coughs> medical, uh, that moved to an accrual basis. Now, the city does cover this difference in total cost uh, for the single retiree via the city charter formula. And then for early retiree rates being higher than Medicare Advantage plan rates, um, when you're a Medicare individual, the federal government does fund the majority of those overall plan costs. So those payments are determined through uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, or what we call CMS. And there was a nice illustration that I had in the United Healthcare uh, renewal deck back in June that showed kind of how that played into what the UHC uh, MAPD renewal was. Um, so I encourage a review of page eight of that material for that information. So for early retirees on page four, uh, you can see a couple of uh, visual examples through these bar charts of the three elements of the city count, uh, contribution formula. You know, you start with the 10 county uh, amount and then build upon that, you know, what's called the actual difference, which is the difference between the early retiree only total cost rate and the active employee only total cost rate. And then there is also a Prop E uh, contribution element. So that provides incremental funding uh, for both the retiree only, but also for the retiree um, and dependent tiers. So you'll see, for instance, the Prop E amount is higher for those in the retiree plus one and retiree plus two or more tiers uh, relative to the retiree only tier, you know, for these two examples. Uh, the Blue Shield Access Plus and the Kaiser plans. Now, most of the dollars that are paid by employers for non-Medicare retiree city contributions, that goes to the retiree and coverage. Um, that Prop E portion does provide some city contribution funding for the first dependent, but it, it is a lower dollar amount than the retiree and coverage. And there is no city contribution, you know, from charter language for the second and further dependents in retiree coverage, so that is why the retiree must pay the full cost increment between the retiree plus one tier and the retiree plus two or more tier to cover those second and higher dependents. Um, these uh, charter-defined elements you'll see here um, on page five, the section references are here and where they translate to in the labeling of the rate cards. Um, you know, footnote number one, uh, in no case would those city contributions exceed the total cost rate uh, for a plan, which is exactly why the 10 county amount and the single retiree offset and Medicare Advantage plans equal the retiree tier only tier rate for the Medicare Advantage plans. And then the Prop E language, you know, specific to dependents, um, you can see here in section 8.428C, which is why the Prop E provides funding for the first dependent um, of the retiree. For Medicare retirees, you know, works the, the same from a formula standpoint. The application may seem a little different, but it's, again, because the total rate for the plan is less than the 10 county amount. So that's why ultimately you see zeros for the retiree-only contribution for both Medicare plans 
And then from there, there's no actual difference um, because that 10 county amount is fully funding uh, the retiree. And then the Prop E portion is essentially providing 50% uh, of the first dependence total cost rate. And you can see here how that plays out, you know, for the two Medicare Advantage plans, and in particular on the left side uh, for the United Healthcare PPO plan, you know, we show the various combinations of retiree plus two or more, including those for um, split Medicare families. So the early retirees paying higher contributions uh, for dependent coverage than active employees. You know, that actual difference, again, covers the difference in cost and the uh, self-only tiers. But the city contribution difference for dependents lies in the MOUs for the active employees uh, versus the city charter formula for retirees. And the chart here looks at, you know, someone who's in the active employee 93, 93, 83 MOU. You know, the city is paying 93% for self-only, 93% for self plus one, and 83% for self plus two or more, you know, for most plans, except that highest cost plan, which is the PPO. And then how that translates into early retiree, you know, for the self only, the actual difference bridges that entire total rate difference. Um, for the self plus one, the city is paying 50% of an incremental cost uh, for that first dependent, and then no incremental city contribution for the second and additional dependents. And then I'll also note here at the bottom of page seven, and there's an important appendix page um, that I won't review, but it's in this material, that uh, for those hired on or after January 10th, 2009, um, there is a structure of contributions for individuals um, in, this, um, in these hiring dates, which include less than the full city contribution for certain retirees who are hired on or after January 10th, 2009. And again, that table is fully in the appendix. So overall, you know, when we look at the distribution of retirees across the three tiers, about 9% of early retirees and 1% of Medicare retirees cover two or more dependents. Um, Ren Coleridge was gracious enough to review uh, some recent data on SFHSS new retirements. Um, you'll see here, that per Ren and Ren's team, there's 802 new retirements uh, so far in 2023 through August 21st. A vast majority of those, 76%, are individuals who are not yet Medicare. Now, 8% of them will become Medicare um, within a year, 58% within five years, but three out of four are retiring before they become Medicare eligible. And of all the new and existing non-Medicare retirees, you know, 14.5% will be Medicare eligible within a year, 67 within five years. Uh, Rin also looked at sworn fire and police employees and all new retirements through August 21st this year were not yet Medicare eligible, recognizing 18% uh, will be within five years. Um, and there were 14 members additionally who waived coverage. And there are a total of 1,337 new and existing non-Medicare retirees uh, from the uh, sworn fire and police um, uh, individuals. 90.3% will be Medicare eligible within one year, 44% within five years. 
So in closing, um, our AON team will continue to calculate city contribution amounts for SFHSS retiree health plan rate cards based on the city charter language as outlined in this presentation. And though I will not cover them, there are important appendix pages here for your reference. Um, first, some rate card examples. So you can see the application of those three uh, city charter elements for an early retiree plan and a Medicare retiree plan. Uh, specific city charter language for each of the three elements that determine those city contributions for retirees. And as I mentioned, the city contribution provisions for those hired on or after January 10th, 2009. I'll be welcome to entertain commissioner questions. Thank you. So, I wanted to know, can you put that up on the screen, that sheet I gave you that shows the exact what people will be paying for 2024? Commissioner Breslin, you um, requested to show the rates for the the current, for the 2024 year plan. Yes, I think we can pull that up. And I believe that's on slide seven or eight. Seven, so is that the There's eight. That's the 2024, so you, you want the 2023? Okay. Which one do you want? 2024. So I think you want to reference page six. Design changes? Yeah, 2024 is what. But I just want everybody to take notice. Commissioner Breslin, would you, you might need to hold the microphone. Yeah. yeah, it's not reaching as closely. Yeah, I want just I want people to really pay attention to this because especially the actives who may be retiring early uh, to see what they're actually going to be paying here. Uh, Blue Shield <laughs> will be $1,573 per month for uh, um, employee plus two, so uh, that that means anybody under 65 years old that retires. So, and there are quite a number of people that will be retiring. So it it, it would be important that the uh, people from the active unions let their people know that this is what's going to happen when you retire. Um, so, yeah, and but anyway, that will, that's good to put that up there, but. Um, so that's my main concern, that people really can see this, what's happening here. And, you know, Kaiser, of course, is cheaper, but uh, Blue Shield is even more expensive than the, the city plan, which used to never be the case. It's um, like $100 cheaper per month. So, you know. I think this points out the importance of pre-retirement seminars that some of the unions hold um, and, um, and what we do at Health Service with regard to educating members who come in for that information. But the pre-retirement seminars are vital for distributing this information and alerting people. Sadly, in most of those seminars, I've attended quite a few, the POA and fires and a number of others. and. Um, a lot of times the people who attend are already retired or they're so close to that retirement date that they don't have sufficient planning time. And it would be helpful um, for those employee organizations to publicize a little more um, through their members that people really need to take a look at this at least six months or a year before they retire because these rates are shocking especially when it comes to dependent coverage. Very shocking. You know, if I could piggyback on, on, on both of those 
comments and, and add my own. Um, firstly, uh, Mike, thank you for the uh, clarity that you have brought to the issue where most uh, members from the police side, I know we've had pre-retirement seminars, uh, I and, and other commissioners have attended, and seeing really the math that goes into what the eventual expense will be um, is shocking uh, to many members and should be part of their pre-retirement planning. I don't know if this is worth a, an internal conversation about how to socialize this amongst actual uh, department heads because I, I realize that a majority of the pre um, or the early retirees are coming out of our police and fire departments but I have to imagine that given some trends that we're uh, seeing with uh, our workforce uh, it's not uncommon for some to uh, transition out of city employment to uh, early retirement it, it may be helpful to have some sort of um, educational material to socialize really what we are seeing now that is incorporated within some of these uh, before people pull the trigger on retiring they should know what they're getting into and why those numbers are the way they are so uh, firstly a, a compliment uh, to you for the robust and and very clear uh, presentation and, and then more of a comment piggybacking on my colleagues here on the board sure. thank you when, when it gets complicated to me and there's a 50 percent that was added on late, late like I have an old charter here and it just says application of section blah 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 uh, uh, the city and county shall contribute 50 percent of retired persons remaining monthly contributions which I think that was what was in my original charter and that the charter that I was given today was clear it said um, 50 percent of the monthly contributions required but the old charter says 50% of the retired person's remaining monthly contributions, which was confusing to me. Um, you know, but anyway, the, it's, uh, it's a little bit complicated. So I can see where this is a shock. You're fading. Uh, we don't hear you. Yeah, I'm, I can see where this is a shock to a lot of people when they retire. You know, uh, $19,000 a year for is a lot for health insurance if you have two dependents. From my perspective, you know, I think this has been, again, really um, important discussion. Uh, and I, I think it's important based on some of the comments <coughs> we got during the last rate cycle, which was things like, well, just say no. Um, and I think that it's quite cl clear to me from this presentation that that health HSS and the board operate within the constraints of the charter and MOUs. And the MOUs are not something that the HSS creates or created or that there's leeway in our interpretation of MOUs um, and that we have to live within the constraints of this. I will say vis-a-vis -vis the conversation we've had already is that my last employer actually had the first pre-retirement pre program for my peers five years before retirement, uh -huh. five years, so that we can begin to think about what our options are, and that would go into decisions around what those options might be, everything from leaving the state to whether we retire at that moment or whatever. Um, and But five years is not an unreasonable window um, for people to start thinking about this, not two days or two months or even two years before.
Any other comments or questions? So, but thank you for thank you for explaining the math to us. You are the only non-city person who speaks charter that I know. <laughs> so, thank you. Um, You're welcome. If no more uh, um, comments or questions, we'll open it up for public comment. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. Anyone can approach the podium now. Uh, Fred Sanchez from Protect Our Benefits. Uh, <laughs> very complex, obviously. Uh, same with the charter. Difficult to change the charter. Uh, it's some good comments when I talk about that five-year thing. Seeing a supervisor here is very important. Maybe they can look in to see if they can mandate something, uh, some kind of pre-five-year requirement. I mean, uh, just a, a thought. Uh, if that could be somehow mandated, because uh, who is going to protect these early retirees? A, a lot of people end up in that category and to have like a, a 14% rate increase is something that's impossible. It's unrealistic. And I think Mike might have mentioned, you said something like, how many people opt out to just not uh, take health insurance anymore because it's too expensive? And you said something like 14% or something? You had some uh, the number of people who waived. Yes. But um, I, I'd be cautious about that, interpreting that, because many of these people have uh, spouses that have employment that offers insurance. We have a pretty, Correct. We have a pretty high number of people that waive in the general membership. Anyway, well, thank you for the presentation. Very complex. Uh, maybe we can work on that suggestion. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Any other members of the uh, audience who would like to speak? We'll move to our remote public comment. And our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have two callers on the phone line. Zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, let us now move on to the next agenda item, please. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Agenda item number 13, reports and updates from contracted health plan representatives. This is a discussion item, and any of our plan reps can approach the podium. Good afternoon, commissioners and executive director Yant. I wanted to take this opportunity and introduce to you our new vice president of client management at United Healthcare. I'm Monica Nascencio. I'm your United Healthcare representative. And here we have Jeff Renzi as well as Shannon Haas on our leadership team. So uh, Jeff is our newest member of our team. He's our vice president of client management. He uh, will be new to SFHSS, however, he's not new to United Healthcare. He's been with the organization over 20 years. So I'm going to just uh, give the opportunity to Jeff to say a few words. Great. Thank you. 
Thank you. Good afternoon. Jeff Renzi, Vice President of Client Management. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, while I am new to this team, I've been with United Healthcare for the past 22 years, all of which I've spent in client management and in the public sector facing space. So I appreciate the opportunity and I look forward to working with all of you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Anyone else? All right. What? Okay. Oh, oh. oh, come on, Kate. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hi, Kate Ferrante, uh, Vice President, Strategic Accounts, Kaiser Permanente. Um, just wanted to report to the um, to the board that we did have a DMHC fine um, that was given to us a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we will be um, working, obviously started over a year ago and working to rectify that. Um, we've made significant investment in mental health care um, and we will continue to do so, um, including hiring over 600 new therapists, um, investing in new buildings and also contracting in the community. So we will keep Executive Director Yant informed as we move forward, uh, but wanted to let the board know and, and let you know that we're taking this very seriously and moving forward. Appreciate that, thank yeah, you. Absolutely. All right, we will take public comment on your reports. <laughs> thank you, Vice President Howe. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching uh, the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have two callers on the phone line. Zero callers have entered public comment at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Um, next agenda item, please. Agenda item number 14, vote on whether to hold closed session for member appeal. This is an action item and will be presented by Vice President Howe. Um, as I mentioned earlier in our meeting, we have a member appeal and we will recess into closed session pending the vote um, based on relevant uh, state and federal law provisions. So um, colleagues, may I have a motion? So moved. Second. It's been properly moved and seconded. Do we have public comment on this item? We will call public comment for in public comment. And in per in, um, public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those who are watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be called first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, please just press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment and no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have two callers on the phone line. Zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Uh, we will take a roll call vote, please. Roll call vote, starting with Vice President Howe. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Supervisor Dorsey. Commissioner Follinsby? Aye. And Commissioner Zavansky? Aye. 
All right, it's been unanimously approved that we recess in a closed session. So thank you, everybody. Uh, this means that all parties not party to the closed session must exit. And, uh, and I think Holly will go ahead and do all of the virtual shutdowns as necessary. I did also want to recognize that Supervisor Dorsey arrived um, and will be present. Yeah. Yes. Hello. <laughs> thank you.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. now in the final moments of our health service board meeting for November 9th and we are back in open session so would you please call item number 16 thank you vice president Howe. it's 4:53 p.m. we're back in open session agenda item number 16 vote to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion held in closed session a San Francisco administrative code section 67.12a this is an action item uh, Ms. Uh, Madam Vice President, I move that we discuss nothing that was, um, or we disclose nothing that was discussed in closed session. Second. All right. Do we have public comment on this item? We'll open this up for public comment. And public comment is open now. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. No one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, there are zero callers on the phone line and zero callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll take a roll call vote, please. Roll call vote starting with Vice President Howe. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Supervisor Dorsey. Aye. Commissioner Follinsby. Aye. And Commissioner Zemanski. Aye. Uh, item number 17, please. Thank you, Vice President Howe. Agenda item number 17, possible report on action taken in closed session. Government Code Section 54957.1 and San Francisco Administrative Code Section 67.12B. This is an action item presented by Vice President Howe. 
So colleagues, uh, we need to uh, either have a motion to report or not. I move we do not report on the action taken in closed session. Second. Second. Public comment, please. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, there are zero callers on the phone line and zero callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Roll call vote, please. Roll call vote, starting with Vice President Howe. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Commissioner or Supervisor Dorsey. Aye. Commissioner Follinsby. Aye. Commissioner Zvansky. Aye. Thank you. We've come to our final <coughs> agenda item, which is adjournment. So I now uh, call this meeting of the Health Service Board of November 9th, a marathon meeting, adjourned. Within six minutes. <laughs>